who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Sidewalk Audio presents Shadow Magic. A podcast novel by John Lenihan. Read by the author. Chapter 8. Essa. Since my first experience of a castle was inside a sewer-scented dungeon, I was expecting the other side of the door to be filled with disgusting barbarians in bearskins. I imagined them chomping on huge legs of animal flesh as they slapped the backsides of passing serving wenches, their greasy chins glistening in dim torchlight. How wrong can a boy be? This place was spectacularly elegant. We were no longer strictly in the castle, but in the great vineyard, a football-pitch-sized courtyard adorned with fountains and huge black-and-white marble statues. The statues were like chess pieces strewn about in a haphazard manner, some upright, others on their side, as if the gods had just dumped out a giant chess set before they set up for a game. Roofing the courtyard was a black trellis that supported grapevines with fruit as big as plums. What was left of the day's light filtered through the leaves, giving the room a majestic green hue. Remembering the incident with the apples, the first thing I did was place my hand on the vine and ask nicely if I could have a grape. No, you may not. The answer came back so clear it made my head hurt. These were proud plants. Fergal whacked me on the back. You weren't thinking about picking a grape from the great vineyard, were you? Who, me? I lied. I wouldn't be that stupid. Come on, let's try Jared's new vintage. The party was in full swing. The music was infectious. It instantly lifted me into a party mood and made my walk resemble a little dance. It reminded me of traditional Irish music, but not quite. I was starting to think that there must have been some cultural exchange between my world and this one, because so much of the land was almost familiar. The couple of hundred guests were standing around with mugs or sitting at wooden tables. 
I noticed that no two tables were of the same wood, and each one would have made an antique dealer drool. It seemed that all were welcome here. The guests' clothes ranged from farmer's rags to elegant flowing gowns, and everyone was mixing. I was expecting to get that we-don't-like-strangers-around-here stare, but everyone was smiling and nodding, especially to a raff. We got to the bar, and Fergal ordered, Three of the new stuff. While we were waiting for our wine, Fergal noticed he was standing next to someone he knew and slapped him on the back. He was a tall, lean man with very straight, shoulder-length blonde hair. I could see by his expression that he liked being slapped almost as much as I did. Asus, how the hell are you? Ah, Fergal, this must be your first celebration at Castle Mon. It is indeed, Fergal said. And, and good evening, Master Araf, the tall man said. Araf bowed. Asus, Fergal said, I'd like you to meet Connor. Connor? Asus. Good evening, I said, bowing in the same manner as Araf. The tall man bowed back, but only slightly. Asus, Fergal explained, is the elf that takes care of the trees around Castle Orr. You're an elf? I blurted before I could stop myself. I have that distinction, yes. Well, I said, trying to recover my composure, some of my best friends are elves. Oh, yes, Isis said. Who? What a stupid thing to say. What was I going to do now? This was the first person I had met in the land that I hadn't tried to stab. I was starting to miss my old method of meeting people. Uh, Legless, do you know him? No, Isis said. What clan is he in? I don't know, I said. Hey, when I said best friends, I really meant, you know, acquaintances. The awkward moment was saved by the arrival of our wine. Fergal, and even a raff, got very excited. Ah, my first taste of the new vintage. To Jared and his vines. Fergal toasted and we all clinked our mugs. I'm not a real big fan of wine. I'll have the odd glass at a posh dinner. But by and large, I'd rather have a beer any day of the week. But this was wine I would sell my soul for. It was the nectar of the gods. I had an image of Bacchus, the Roman wine god, waltzing in and throwing a barrel of this stuff over his shoulder. I don't know why I was so surprised that this was the finest wine I had tasted. Everything I had tried in the land had been the best thing I had ever seen or smelt or tasted, but surprised I was. Wow! This is awesome! I screamed so loud that everyone around the bar turned to look. It is all right, Isis said, dropping his voice to a whisper. I think Jared is skimping on the gold a bit this year, but so is everyone. You mean there's better wine than this, I said, between slurps. That was a mistake. Isis went into a litany of vintages, giving detailed descriptions of each year's color, flavor, and bouquet. He was a wine bore. I spotted it instantly and didn't even try to keep up. While I pretended to listen to him, I contemplated meeting my first elf. He didn't look like an elf. Here I was in a room full of elves, imps, banshees, and God knows what else, and everyone looked so normal. To be honest, I was a bit disappointed. In the back of my mind, I wanted this party to be a bit like the cantina scene in Star Wars, but it seems that the difference between an elf and a banshee is like the difference between a Norwegian and an Italian. Sure, you could tell the difference, but underneath, they were all pretty much the same. The sun had almost set. The light shining through the vine trellis was waning. Just as I thought, we could use a little more light in here. As if on cue, about twenty of the waiting staff entered the room, each holding a small pyramid of glowing gold wire balls. 
A handsome and distinguished man, also holding five glowing wire balls, strode into the center of the room. The golden glow from his hands was brighter than all of the others. It illuminated his purple velvet outfit, his silver beard, and twinkled in ancient but still mischievous eyes. He looked like a king out of a pack of cards. The crowd parted and applauded as he made his way to the small dais in the center of the room. Fergal nudged my side. Look, it's Jared. Jared tried to raise his hand to quiet the crowd and almost dropped the balls he was holding. He laughed heartily at this, as did everyone else. We all quieted down to hear. My good friends, he boomed, and I instantly knew he meant it. He loved these people. Welcome to Mon. Every year I'm amazed and humbled that so many of you would travel so far just to sample my newest vintage. Someone shouted, We wouldn't miss it for the world, and the assemblage replied with a hear, hear. Thank you, Jared continued. I am especially heartened that so many of you have come for this harvest. I know how difficult a time you have been having this year. The crowd mumbled. I heard Isis whisper, Well, that's a first. What is? I asked. Jared never makes political statements like that. But as you know, Jared continued, Castle Mon is no place for talk like that, even by me. Anyone heard grumbling tonight will be tossed out of my highest window. This brought laughter and cheers. For tonight is a celebration. At that, he threw the five glowing balls he was holding up into the air and began to juggle. All of the servants threw theirs, and all at once the air was full of cascading glowing wire orbs. The jugglers then began to pass the balls among themselves. Guests everywhere were ducking as glowing missiles just missed their heads. Now, I've done a bit of juggling in my day, and I can tell you, these were no ordinary juggling balls. The jugglers weren't even breaking a sweat. They never dropped one or hit anybody, and if you watch closely, you could sometimes see the balls waiting until the juggler was ready before they fell back to earth. Someone shouted, Hup! and all the jugglers threw their remaining balls high in the air, where they just kept on going. The balls intertwined themselves with a the vine trellis and then glowed even brighter. They bathed the room in golden light. The applause and hoots and hollering were deafening. The music kicked in, and the party truly began. Fergal slapped me on the back and said, We need food. Food? Every time I hear that, I think, what a good idea. We weaved our way through the vines of people until we came upon what looked like a five-acre buffet table. I had never seen so much food. Who was it all for? It made me worry that a busload of three-headed giants and trolls hadn't arrived yet. I found a plate and just piled it on. I took a little bit of everything. If the apples were anything to go by, this was going to be the best meal of my life. I stopped when the food on my plate started to resemble the Leaning Tower of Pisa. One more crumb and I would have had a spilled food disaster of horrific proportions. I looked up to find that I had lost my friends. I searched around a bit, but I couldn't see them. I couldn't risk weaving through the crowd looking for them with this overflowing plate, so I sat down alone in a nearby chair. My intention was to try and eat the top off of my food mountain until it was transportable. The food was so good my moaning grew stares. I chomped in ecstasy as I spied on the other guests. I was starting to figure stuff out. Banshees and elves were mostly tall, with banshees being dark while elves were fair. Imps were shorter as a rule, built like bowling pins, including the women. There were others that looked like they could have been TV presenters, and still more that I couldn't put into any category I knew yet. I was also starting to gauge how old people were without seeing their eyes. A sense of seniority poured out of some like an aura. 
The way they talked and walked or just held themselves made it easy to separate the young ones from the elders. A large dance started up. It looked like fun, but unbelievably complicated. It seemed as if the dance was designed for the room. Partners held hands and then danced around the statues in circles of eight, then sixteen, or more if the statue was on its side. And then, as if they all had a secret radio in their ears, they made a huge undulating circle around the room before somehow finding their partners again. It was lucky they were immortals because it probably took a couple hundred years to learn it. I was just about to dance my way through the room and search for my newfound friends when I was overcome by an awful pang of guilt. I slumped in my chair and thought, what right do I have to celebrate? My father is lying wounded somewhere, maybe even dead. I may never get back to my life in the real world, and even if I do, it'll be in tatters. I'll most likely flunk out of high school, and Sally will never speak to me again. All of a sudden, I felt out of place and alone, just a little boy who had lost his mother. That's when I heard a woman's voice behind me. My father says that Castlemoon does not have enough magic to solve all of your problems, she said. Just enough to allow you to leave them outside the door. I turned and almost fell in love. She was casually rolling one of those glowing juggling balls over her fingers and from hand to hand, making the light waltz around her face and sparkle in young, dark eyes. She wore a purple velvet dress, and her curly black hair cascaded onto her bare shoulders. I know I should be ashamed of myself, but at that second, my parents, my life, Sally, all shot straight out of my head. I was filled with the vision before me. It seemed by your face, she said, that you've smuggled your problems in with you. Not anymore, I said. They're gone. They're out of here. She smiled, and my heart pounded. I couldn't help notice the strange runes on your tunic. I looked down and laughed. I was amazed that no one had mentioned it before. I was wearing my New York Yankees sweatshirt. <laughs> These are special runes where I come from. They mean I'm cool. She reached out and touched them. They don't feel cool. My name is Connor. I am pleased to meet you, Connor. I am Essa. We bowed to each other without losing eye contact. I'm sure I have never met you, Connor. What house are you from? I came with a raff, I said, sidestepping the question. A raff? She screamed and jumped up and down. Is he here? Where? I, I don't know. I've lost him. Well, we must find him. She grabbed my hand and pulled me into the party. She was moving fast, and I was being thrown into fellow guests and upsetting mugs, but there was no way I was going to let go of that hand. We found Fergal in a raft with a bunch of others sitting on a horizontal black pawn. Essa released my hand and launched herself at a raft who caught her and returned the hug. It was the first time in my life I wished I was an imp. Why didn't you tell me you were coming, she said. A raft shrugged. And you must be Fergal. A raft has told me so much about you. Couldn't help wondering when a raft did all of this talking. A servant brought us fresh mugs of wine. Fergal looked as if he had had plenty already. Essa whispered into the servant's ear. Your father throws a hell of a party, Fergal slurred. He does, doesn't he? Here's to Dad, Essa said, raising her mug in a toast. Your father is Jared, I asked. The one and only. Well, I'll drink to that. The waiter returned, carrying two banta sticks, which he handed to Essa. She took both sticks and threw one to a raft. 
the assembled crowd ooed at the challenge. Araf caught the stick, but he didn't look interested. Another servant arrived with headgear and protective clothing. Essa put on leather gloves, a heavy leather jacket that came almost to her knees, and a protective headpiece. A white helmet with a thin gold wire mesh covering. Despite the heckling of the crowd, Araf refused to stand up. Fergal came up behind him and put a helmet on his head. Still, he sat there. I, Essa of Mun, challenge you, Araf of Or, to single banta combat. She struck a stance similar to an on-guard position in fencing, right foot forward with knees bent. She looked magnificent. In her right hand, she held the banta in the middle. The weapon had a knot of wood at one end, which she pointed directly at Araf. If this was a formal and proper challenge, Araf showed no signs of partaking. A smile crossed Essa's face. She spun the banta in her hand like a baton twirler and in a flash covered the distance between her and Araf. She brought the smaller end of the stick down on his head and then bounced backward, retaking her defensive stance, her stick across her chest, with her left hand stretched forward for balance. I'd never seen anything so graceful. She obviously knew what she was doing. The audience loved it. The crowd erupted when the thud came from Araf's helmet. Someone shouted, One to Essa! Essa waited in her defensive pose, but it was unnecessary. Araf wasn't playing. He sat there, like an old dog ignoring a rambunctious puppy. This didn't seem to bother her. She launched herself into a spinning, swirling attack that hit Araf on the right shoulder. If it hurt, and it sure looked like it did, Araf didn't show it. The crowd, that was getting larger by the minute, howled with delight. Two to naught, to Essa, Fergal shouted. How high does the score go, I asked. Essa challenged him to a formal match. Each landed blow is one point, and a knockdown is five. The first to eleven is the winner. Essa attacked again. This attack was a mirror image of the previous one. This time she landed her stick on Araf's left shoulder. Well, it looks like Araf is going to lose this one, I said. I don't think so, Fergal said. Why not? Because he never has. Never has what? He has never lost, Fergal said. Araf is the undefeated banta-fighting champion of all of the land. Well, at the moment, I said, Essa looks pretty good. Fergal smiled. Keep watching. Essa backed away and then launched into a new and bolder attack. She came at Araf and then leapt over his head. I once saw a deer on a country road jump over a tall fence. Essa had the same majestic poise. In midair, she connected with two blows on the side of Araf's helmet and landed behind him with two more points under her belt. The crowd applauded. Araf didn't even turn around. Essa walked around Araf and stood directly in front of him. She crouched down and looked into his eyes and smiled. There might have been a flicker of a smile from Araf in reply. With the big end of her stick, she tapped Araf's faceplate. The wire mesh glowed for a second. There was obviously some magic protecting the face. The entire audience shouted, Five! She tapped again. Six! And again. Seven! Eight! Nine! On the blow that should have been ten, Araf moved his head quickly to the left. Essa was thrown off balance, and Araf poked his stick between her feet and tripped her. She went down fast. The audience booed in good humor. Essa had been cocky, and she had that coming. She rolled quickly to her feet. Araf slowly stood. Now things were getting interesting. 
The crowd was buzzing. Essa backed away, and the partygoers gave them room. A giant, people-edged arena formed, with everyone watching. Essa backed into the middle of the room and retook her defensive posture. Araf walked towards her and stopped two stick lengths away and bowed. Even though the score was nine to five, he was indicating that now the duel had truly begun. Essa nodded in reply. Araf took a stance, not the graceful Tai Chi-like posture of Essa, but a flat-footed straight-on stance. He held his banta across his chest with both hands, like the staff fights in old Robin Hood movies. This was a battle between style and brawn. Essa mounted a twirling attack to the head. Araf parried it and brought the bottom end of his stick up for a counterattack. Essa spun and dodged it. Just. The two of them were feeling each other out. Essa tried a lower attack, but this failed. Araf's parry was so strong that she momentarily lost her balance, allowing Araf to get her with a counterblow to her side that made me wince. Six came a cry from the crowd. The combatants stared at each other for a minute, and then Araf initiated his first offensive attack. For a big guy, he moved fast. There was no twirling or pirouettes, just a direct attack, wide, quick, sweeping blows from alternating sides. Essa had no difficulty with his speed, but she didn't have the strength to block the blows without a step backward. She gave ground with every parry and was running out of room. I expected her to start swinging around in a circle, but she continued straight back. Each block pushed her closer into a corner. Just when I thought it was all over for her, she bent her knees and dove headfirst over Araf's head. With the poise of an Olympic high diver, she jumped Araf's banta stick and then planted her own stick on top of Araf's shoulder, pole vaulting and somersaulting behind him. The crowd went wild. Ten, they screamed in unison. Six to ten. If Essa could land one more blow, she would win. I heard someone yell, Who is the student and who is the master now? So that was it. Essa had studied under Araf. This was a student-teacher grudge match. The lightheartedness that marked the beginning of the duel was gone. Araf clumped into his stance. Essa flowed into hers. We waited to see who would initiate the next attack. The only sound was Essa's breathing. Araf broke the calm. With an unexpected twirl of his banta stick, he came at Essa with a series of angle-down swings that blurred into a continuous figure of eight. It looked as if Essa had just stepped in front of a taxiing airplane. I could see in her eyes that the master had not taught the student everything. Initially, she didn't even try to parry. She backed away, attempting to decipher the rhythm of the attack. Before she ran out of space, she experimented with parries that succeeded in slowing down the attack, but only a bit. For a second time, she tried her flipping pole vault maneuver. She should never have attempted it twice. Araf dodged her stick, turned, and made contact with her calf in midair. She landed on one foot, not enough to keep her balance. She hit the floor skidding. The only thing hurt was her pride. A five-point knockdown. She had lost. Araf helped her to her feet, then stood in front of her and formally bowed. Essa hit him over the head with her stick. The crowd erupted in laughter. The fighters took off their masks, and Essa planted a huge kiss on Araf's cheek. For the second time today, I wished I was an imp. Essa hung on Araf's arm as they returned. Fergal added his slap to all of the others that Araf had received on his back as he traveled through the crowd. Thank you for upholding the honor of the House of Or, 
Fergal slurred. He was past tipsy and well-nigh on to very drunk. That was very impressive, I said to Essa. It would have been more impressive if I had won. Well, I was rooting for you. She smiled. It was very nice. You should have a fight, Connor, Fergal said as he stumbled into me. You'd kick ass around here with that snap spell you're wearing. You're wearing a snap spell, someone said behind me. I turned to answer when out of the corner of my eye I saw Fergal grab S's banta stick. It's an amazing spell. Watch this, he said as he swung. I remember the look of surprise on everyone's face as the stick hit my skull. Then everything went black. The first thing I remember thinking as I came to was, is this my third concussion this week or my fourth? In my whole life I had never even been dizzy. Now it seemed I couldn't go a day without being knocked cold. I was disappointed that you don't actually see stars in Tweety Birds like in cartoons, but I can assure you you get great big bumps. I felt a cold compress being applied to my forehead, and when I opened my eyes, I saw that my nurse was Essa. I've died, haven't I? I said. I don't think so. She looked worried. No, I must be dead because you're an angel. I was a bit corny, but... I was quite proud of myself coming up with a line that good so soon after multiple concussions. I think you must be feeling better, she said, and took the cold compress off my forehead. I sat up. I had a pain in my head that I hadn't experienced since my last blow to the head. Earlier that day, I think. I winced. You, you wouldn't have any of that willow tea around here, would you? Here, drink this. She handed me a tiny glass with no more than two thimblefuls of brown liquid. Is that all I get? Believe me, that's all you will need. It's my father's special tonic. It'll make you feel better. I downed it in one. Had I been facing a mirror, I would have seen steam shooting out of my ears. I sat bolt upright in the bed and croaked, Wow! Essa laughed. You'll be better now, and stood to go. I was instantly better, but... I didn't want to let her go. I grabbed the wet cloth and put it in her hand. Don't go. I think I'm going to faint, I said, trying to look as ill as I could, and laid back down on the bed. What makes me think you're not being sincere? She smiled. Oh, oh, the pain, I said, and pulled her hand to make her place the cloth on my forehead. She lost balance and pretty well fell on top of me. She laughed a little bit and didn't immediately get up. Her face was only inches away. Her lips were so close that I could feel her breath. I stared straight into her eyes, those magnificent dark eyes. And then her father came in. Essa sat bolt upright. I think she moved even faster than she did during her banta fight with Araf. I, I think he's feeling better, father. I sat up. That I can see. Leave us, daughter, will you? Essa gave me a glance. She looked worried, and to be honest, I didn't like Jared's tone either. Before she left, Jared said, May I borrow your pendant for a little while? This seemed to shock her. She removed a finger-sized crystal that was hanging from a plain gold chain around her neck and handed it to her father. She gave me one apprehensive look and left. Jared took a step closer to the bed. 
drew a sword and pointed it an inch from my throat. Honest, sir, I said. I, I didn't even kiss her. You have been listening to Shadow Magic, a podcast novel by John Lenahan. Music gratefully provided by Lunasa. To hear more of their fabulous music, please visit their website, www.lunasa.ie. That's www.lunasa.ie. For more information about Shadow Magic or its author, please visit www.shadowmagic.co.uk Thank you very much for listening.